Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, and this is Last Week in the Church, the weekly recap of Big Vatican and Global Church News, brought to you by Crux. We're your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. That is cruxnow.com. So the dominant news story in the world obviously continues to be Ukraine, and we've got three Vatican angles for, on that story for you today. First, the Pope made his strongest statement yet on the conflict yesterday, indirectly calling out one of Vladimir Putin's most cherished, cherished pieces of rhetoric. Second, despite that, there continues to be a drumbeat of criticism that the Vatican is being too cautious, too silent, pulling its punches, we will unpack all of that for you. And finally, Putin faces growing resistance from an unexpected quarter from within his own Russian Orthodox fold. We'll explain why that matters. Then on other fronts, a close papal friend and ally is convicted of sexual abuse in the Pope's native Argentina. We'll explain why that's important. In the Vatican trial of the century, Judges deliver what one observer referred to as a judicial spanking to defense attorneys this week. And so it is on to the evidentiary phase of the trial. And finally, Pope Francis raised some eyebrows this week by granting Vatican dads paternity leave. Now, the surprise was not so much that he did it, but how little of it he actually provided. We'll explain why. All that and more is waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, happy Tuesday to you. Hope you had a wonderful weekend. Elise, my wife, and I had a fairly busy one. We had people over. It was like Grand, Grand Central Station at our house over the weekend. People were constantly in and out. But, you know, it's good to have friends, and life is beautiful except maybe in Ukraine right now, and that's where we begin this week. So the, the war in Ukraine continues to press on, although the Ukrainians appear to be mounting remarkably and somewhat unexpectedly stiff resistance to the Russians, which has effectively halted the offensive in some parts of the country, or at least delayed the inevitable. Russia continues with its full court press. In terms of how the Vatican is handling all of this, let's begin with the Pope's uh, Sunday Angelus message. The Angelus, of course, is that traditional noontime address. It's actually a prayer, of course, to the Virgin Mary that occurs at noon. But on Sunday, the Pope always couples praying that prayer with a few words on various things. Often they involve current events. And so this Sunday, he obviously directed his attention to Ukraine. He began by saying that rivers of blood are being shed in Ukraine, obviously a dramatic image. And then he said pointedly, this is not a military operation, this is a war. Now that, of course, although he did not use the magic words Vladimir Putin, that is in a sense a direct rebuke to Putin's insistence on referring to this as a limited special military operation with a humanitarian scope. That, of course, is how it is being portrayed uh, on Russian state media uh, on a daily basis, where many Russians either don't know that there is a war going on in Ukraine or don't believe it because it's not what they've been told. So the Pope 
in effect, was calling that out. He went on to appeal directly for the creation of humanitarian corridors in Ukraine. That, of course, is very much an object of negotiations and diplomatic activity at the moment. It also, of course, echoes a call made by the community of Sant'Egidio, which is the Pope's favorite new movement in the Catholic Church. And so the Vatican is very much putting itself foursquare behind that idea. The Pope also went on to talk about the need to welcome refugees from Ukraine. Now that, of course, is largely happening in most of Europe. But nevertheless, he echoed the importance of doing that, people fleeing the horrors of war. And in effect, it amounted to the strongest rhetoric Pope Francis has used to this point. By the way, as a footnote, there was a bit of a snafu in the Pope's Angelus address because he said, as part of the Vatican's commitment to trying to do everything it can to help mediate this conflict and to bring peace to Ukraine, there are already two cardinals who were in Ukraine. He was referring to Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, that's the Pope's chief charitable official, and Canadian Cardinal Michael Cherney, who is the Pope's top guy on migrants and refugees. And he said their presence in Ukraine represents not only the love of the Pope, but the entire church for the people of Ukraine. The problem is neither of those guys is actually in Ukraine. The truth of it is that Krajewski is currently in Poland. He is Polish, and he's consulting with Poland about the fate of Ukrainian refugees in that country. The intention is he is going to press on to Ukraine, assuming conditions allow. Cherny, at the moment, we believe, is still in Rome. His trip is still being planned. But the idea is that he is going to get as close to Ukraine as he can to check on the situation of migrants and refugees and hopes to eventually get into the country. Probably what happened here is that the Pope was told that Krajewski and Cherny are going, and he thought they were already there. You know, Pope Francis has never been one to sweat the details of things like this. You know, he, he is forever in his interviews or his press conferences saying something is going to happen on a certain date when it's actually not that date, or, you know, something has already been done when, in fact, it's still in the works. And you've got to give him a break. The Pope is a pastor, and he's a moral leader. He is not a policy wonk. He's not always on top of all of the details that, you know, you, you, you might think someone would want to have command of before they pronounced on them publicly. But in any event, he wasn't wrong in the sense that Krajewski and Cherny are on their way. They're going to try to get into Ukraine, and they are trying to represent the concern of the Pope and the Church. So there you have it. We journalists spent a kind of frenzied couple of hours trying to figure out what the hell was going on. But now we know, and it really does not seem that big a deal. All right, despite the fact that the Pope is sending his horses into the field, despite the fact that the Pope is sort of dialing up his rhetoric, there does continue to be a strong reservoir of criticism that it's not enough. My wife and I, for instance, we spent some time with a cardinal on Sunday. And when he came over to our house, I went down to escort him up. 
I was wearing a t-shirt that shows the Ukrainian and Italian flags together as a kind of, you know, gesture of, of solidarity. And, the, you know, this cardinal, who's known to be a little bit on the conservative side, says to me, I wish the Cardinal Secretary of State had that kind of clarity. You know, and, and you hear this at all levels of the church. It is true that to this point in the conflict, the Pope has yet to name Russia specifically as the aggressor in the conflict. He has yet to condemn Vladimir Putin's actions or even to mention his name. The Cardinal Secretary of State, Italian Cardinal Pietro Parolin, did refer last week to the war unleashed by Russia in Ukraine, so he at least used the word Russia, but that's really been it. I mean, for example, when Russian forces fired on a nuclear power plant this week, there was no statement from the Vatican, even though every other government in the world said something about it. And this is especially ironic because Pope Francis has been so emphatic about denouncing nuclear weapons and the use of nuclear force in any form in an armed conflict. You would think this would be an obvious opportunity to point out the dangers of it, but no. To date, the Vatican has not joined the, whatever it is now, 37, 39, I've, I've lost track. The number of countries who have called for the International Criminal Court to open a war crimes investigation against Vladimir Putin. And by the way, the Vatican was an early and enthusiastic supporter of the creation of an international criminal court. War crimes are, of course, explicitly condemned in Catholic social teaching. And, and all of this, also, whenever the, the Vatican has conducted some meetings with Russian ambassadors and other Russian officials in the past few days, but they never say anything afterwards about what was discussed, so you are left, you have no idea, actually what is being said or, or, or what ends the Vatican is trying to achieve. All of this is enormously frustrating for a lot of people who, who just think that the Vatican ought, frankly, to be bolder. And, and particularly when it comes to the commission of war crimes, ought to name them as such, right? It's that Bible passage, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, it's it's Jesus' praise of, of Nathan. There was no guile in him, and people sometimes think there's too much guile in the Vatican. Now, whatever you think of it, l let's just be clear. A, this is not just Pope Francis. This is how popes have always ruled. The, they try to stay outside of specifically naming parties to conflicts because they want to be able to operate behind the scenes as brokers of that conflict. And B, because popes also have to bear responsibility for the consequences of whatever they would say for their own people on the ground. And let me remind you that there are a lot of Catholics in Ukraine. The Greek Catholic Church in Ukraine is the largest of the 23 Eastern Rite churches in communion with Rome. We're talking about somewhere between four to six million people. Now, m many of those, most of those Catholics are concentrated in the west of the country around Lviv, which up to this point has been relatively, and I emphasize relatively, insulated from the conflict. I mean, what, what a pope has to think about is, suppose he gets up in the pulpit on Sunday and says, Vladimir Putin, you are a thug and a bully. I am calling you out. You need to back down. Well, as Russian forces advance to the West, there is, for example, the Catholic University of Ukraine, which is the only Catholic university in that part of the world. And it is a, it is a marvel. It's a crown jewel 
As Russian forces begin moving towards Lviv, do you really want them having the Catholic University on their hit list? Do you want them thinking of those Greek Catholics as potential saboteurs who are allied with the Pope who is defying their leader? Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but, but that is a very difficult choice. And so the only thing I am trying to emphasize here is that a, a pope has to think about how he uses his words because it, it matters, it has consequences, and the Vatican is once again engaged in that centuries-old fine juggling act. All right, finally, an unusual challenge to Putin is mounting from within his own Russian Orthodox fold. My wife, Elise Ann Allen, reported over the weekend on the Crux site about a petition among Russian Orthodox priests that is already attracted with an excess of 300 signatures. And these are members of Putin's own Russian Orthodox Church, clergy in that church, who are calling for an immediate end to the war in Ukraine and essentially suggesting to Putin that he is on the wrong course. Now, this is not the normal role of the Russian Orthodox Church. Typically, there has been a very tight relationship between throne and altar in Russia. Putin himself sees himself as the great patron and protector of Orthodox Christianity in the world, and he has a very close relationship with Patriarch Kirill of Moscow. Now, notably, there were no metropolitans who signed this letter, that is, no senior bishops, but at least it suggests that at the grassroots of the Russian Orthodox Church, there is growing discontent. And if that proves to be the case, it could, and I emphasize could, God only knows, could induce what many would see as a long overdue reform within Russian Orthodoxy in which the church puts some distance between itself and the state. You know, this is a path the Catholic Church had to, had to walk long ago. Perhaps this will be one of those historical pivotal turning points where such an evolution begins to unfold within Russian Orthodoxy as well. We will see. All right, on other fronts. The story of Bishop Gustavo Zanchetta has long been, if you were to compile a list of like unanswered questions about the Francis papacy, like enigmas about Pope Francis, Probably Gustavo Zanchetta would be pretty near the top of that list. He was the bishop of Oran, small diocese in northern, northern Argentina. While he was there, there were rumors, whispers, you know, water cooler talk, that there was something hinky, both in his relationship with seminarians in the local seminary, also in terms of money management and just basic diocesan administration. So all that kind of began to percolate, and he was removed as the bishop of Iran, granted a kind of, you know, one of these temporary leaves that becomes permanent. And for a while, he was kind of a man without a country, just sort of floating around out there. But then in 2017, Pope Francis brought him to the Vatican and gave him a position within the administration of the patrimony of the Apostolic See. That's a mouthful. We call it OPSA, basically the Vatican's main money center. Some people call it like the Vatican Central Bank. Anyway, he was given a gig there, which at the time a lot of people thought was strange for a guy who, among other things, 
had been accused of, you know, financial mismanagement. But, you know, whatever. He was given this gig. Then when charges, direct charges of sexual abuse against minor seminarians emerged out of Iran, Zanketa was suspended from that Vatican gig, and there was supposedly some kind of canonical investigation, although we never learned what came of it. In 2000, he was then just quietly reinstated to that gig with no explanation whatsoever. But he began to once again sort of pop up in photos of the Pope lurking around the scene. And then finally, Zaketa was indicted criminally in his native Argentina for two charges of sexual abuse against minor seminarians. And this week, he was convicted and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. The Vatican so far has had absolutely no comment. It's weird because... You know, all along, we have been thinking one of two things has to be true. Either Pope Francis must know something about Sanchetta that gives him confidence in the guy that he simply has chosen not to share, or it must be true that Pope Francis decided that the guy at least deserved the benefit of the doubt and was going to let the process play itself out. Well, now the process kind of has played itself out, although Zanchetta's lawyers say he's going to appeal. In the meantime, it just is weird to a lot of people, and, and for many of them somewhat troubling, that Pope Francis has never explained the apparent faith he feels in a guy who has not only been accused, but now convicted of sexual abuse. Now, you know, as the old saying goes, being Pope means never having to say you're sorry. And the truth of it is, he doesn't really owe anyone an explanation, I suppose. Nevertheless, there are a lot of people who would love to have one. All right. In the Vatican's trial of the century, this is that trial against 10 defendants, including, for the very first time, a prince of the church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the former papal chief of staff, basically, for financial crime, mostly centering on that London property deal, $400 million London property deal that went bad. We've been, since last summer, we've been bogged down basically in procedural matters as defense lawyers, and there are 30 of them, by the way, have been filing objection after objection after objection to the way evidence was shared with the defense, to the way the prosecution has conducted itself, to some orders the Pope gave at the start of all this that they claim violated due process and on and on. Finally, we got, things came to a head this week when the presiding judge in the case, Judge Giuseppe Pignatoni, distinguished Italian jurist, essentially threw all of that out, just basically dismissed all of it, and said, we are moving ahead to the evidentiary phase. So the next hearing in the trial is set for March 17th, we are supposed on that occasion to hear from Cardinal Bechu himself, so that's going to be must-see TV. In the meantime, there are lingering questions about the, the judge's ruling. Basically, I would say there are two camps. If you are convinced that Bechu et al. are bad guys, they're bad actors, and they, you know, basically what needs to happen is we need to see their heads on pikes, then you are going to welcome this ruling and applaud the judge's courage in, in, in not taking the easy way out, in a sense, by dismissing the case over these procedural objections.
Now, on the other hand, if you're kind of a stickler for, you know, legal theory, due process, the rule of law, and so on, then you might think that failure to engage seriously the defense criticisms represents, well, basically makes this whole process a little dubious, okay? You should read the ruling. It's a, it's a complex 40-page ruling, unfortunately, exclusively in Italian. It is fascinating reading. I will just say this. It, it seems to me one of the unanswered questions from all of this is the lack of a separation of civil powers in the Vatican system. That is, the Pope is basically the supreme executive and the supreme judicial authority. So the judges in this case, when the defense challenged these orders he gave at the beginning of the process, which allowed this investigation to unfold in secret so that the subjects never knew they were targets and therefore had no opportunity to present exculpatory evidence, when he authorized electronic surveillance without any limits of time and without the possibility of judicial review and so on, when he did all that, okay, the defense argued that violates due process. It's not in keeping with accepted European and international standards, which is true. Now, the judge in this case ruled, well, that doesn't matter because in the Vatican, this is how it works, which is also true, okay? However, I don't think it really answers the question of whether it should work like that. And that's going to be one of the legacies of this trial, I think. But once the dust has settled, people are going to have to sort through. Finally, the Pope and paternity leave. The, the Pope issued an amendment, to, it's called a motu proprio, it's his favorite thing, and he issued another one of them this week. This one, tweaking the laws of the Vatican city-state to provide paternity leave, not just for mothers, but for fathers. Now, you know, you may think paternity leave in the Vatican, what for? Because, you know, we think it's all populated by guys wearing pectoral crosses or wearing cassocks. Well, that's not true. There are actually hundreds of lay people who were on the Vatican payroll. And now, under the Pope's new system, when one of them has a child, the mother will still get her six months leave, but the dad will get, drumroll please, three days. That's right, three days of paid paternity leave. That's paltry even by Italian standards. I mean, in Italy, the dad at least gets 10 days, to say nothing of other places where, you know, in France, the dad can get months and so on. So, uh, you know, the question here was, especially for a pope who is constantly complaining about young people not having children, about this looming demographic winter, right? You know, about how important the family is. I mean, for the love of God, he called two synods of bishops on the family because it's so important to him. Well, what's going on here, right? What's the deal? Well, I mean, look. Part of it simply is the, the Italian example where it's just not traditional to grant much paid paternity leave to a father. Part of it probably is the Vatican just doesn't have any money. I mean, you know, they are in a severe financial crutch. And so paid leave is a bitter pill to swallow under any circumstances. But nevertheless, three days. I mean, my favorite response on Twitter was one Italian dad who wrote that three days is approximately the amount of time it takes to learn how to properly install a car seat for your kid. Really doesn't have much to do with, you know, parenting and nurturing a child. So this is probably an issue the Vatican is going to have to face going forward.
it's one of those circumstances where a lot of people would say, look, Pope, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you're going to tell us to have kids, help make it possible by ensuring that we can take the time we need to get them started right. Something the Vatican will have to deal with. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for spending part of your Tuesday with us. I want to remind you that we love bringing this show to you. It is an absolute blast to do, but you need to understand it's not free. We have to pay for studio time. We have to pay for equipment. And every minute that Elise and I are working on this show is a minute we're not working at Crux and somebody else has to pick up the slack. And all of that, of course, requires resources. So if there is any way you could see your way clear to helping us out, if you go on the Crux site, you will find the box on our homepage, a nice, easy, user-friendly way to make a financial contribution, whether one-time or ongoing. We would love ongoing. But to help us keep this show going, because it's important, we love it, we want to keep doing it, we need your help to do that. So if you can, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Over the next week, my charge to you is to stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, keep reading Crux, and we will talk to you again soon.